Welcome to Locarno Meets, where the most exciting new talent and established legends of cinema come to chat about art, life, movies, and everything in between. Brought to you by UBS and hosted by me, Alexander Miller, from Locarno Film Festival. The Human Surge 3 is not the third installment of a zombie franchise. Actually, it's not even the third installment of the Human Surgiverse. It's the second. It's the sequel to Eduardo Williams's acclaimed 2016 film, onto which, in an obtuse style typical to him, he chucked a three onto the end. The Human Surge 3 is a strange journey, shot on 360-degree cameras elevated abnormally above its subjects, the film weaves across three countries, refusing to ever settle on a narrative, or really, a person. It's a film unlike anything you've ever seen before. Unless, of course, you've seen The Human Surge 1. It's a film where none of the people in it get to settle. There's a constant sense of movement. But also, I don't think the audience get to settle. And, and I wondered if there was something that appealed to you about forcing an audience to deal with the fact they're confused because then they have to interpret it. Yeah, I mean, I think I appreciate confusion very much. I think mainly because I think we can never get to have new ideas if we don't go through confusion or, and through accepting the fact of being lost. And of course, not to finish there, but then to get somewhere else, hopefully. I don't know, I'm always trying to, in cinema and in life, to have new ideas because I feel I want to change things of society or of my life or even of cinema. And I think for that, we need to go through confusion, through the unknown, let's say, and not be afraid to go through that and to be there. Um, so that's what I want to share. It's my state of mind and what I try to share with the spectators and also with the people that are doing the film. Mm. Now, stop me if I'm wrong here, mm -hmm. but you made The Human Surge... You're wrong. No. Uh, no, no. You made The Human Surge 2016, right? Yeah. Is there a Human Surge 2? No. No, I didn't think so. Why not is yet, this not yet. Not yet. Why, why have you made The Human Surge 3 before Human Surge 2? <laughs> because, I don't know, I thought the, as I was speaking, you know, emptiness is important. And, uh, and I thought it was a sort of continuation, but not very direct. That's like the more direct explanation then I thought it was a bit more funny and um, surprising to have the three instead of the two and I thought it was logical and also I thought it was maybe I can do the two in the future so you know it's thing of not having one after the other exactly or also letting the two to be imagined by the people you know what what could be between here and that you know let's let's imagine that what is it about the phrase the human surge that you like? What are you trying to say with that phrase? I know that sounds basic, but it's a good combination of words. Okay, that's yeah. good, thank you. <laughs> no, but I thought it in Spanish also, but I think it's quite similar, the translation. But no, I think I liked like this idea of, I don't know, I had this feeling, and I think we many of us have it, that now humanity is in its peak in some ways, at least the, the amount of people in the world and in many other senses. And I thought this is, it was interesting to bring this grandiosity let's say of human surge and then the film is very about common life or normal life even if it's not if it's seen in a different way what happens in the film sometimes is very like everyday life in many senses so it's not so grandiose um, and I tried to bring this of these expectations of the human surge being like I don't know the human surge and then it's not so much but then it is if you think about it I don't know this like dual thing I think was interesting and I don't know I think I like to play with this possible representation of humanity even if I don't want to represent humanity too much 
much for a mm -hmm. film and for my films, of course. But in, I don't know, going through countries that are not seen in cinema in general or not seen in this way or not related mainly, you know, between each other. Also, that was important for me. It's interesting you say the, the juxtaposition of, you know, the grandiose titles, Human Surge and people sitting down, eating food or walking through jungles or whatever. But the whole thing, it feels very apocalyptic to me, but as though humans are going to go, not with a bang, but with a whimper. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yes. I don't know. I think this apocalyptic idea is very present in, in our society nowadays. But then it's like, I remember even when I was in the year 2000, when I was... 23 years younger, but we already had this idea of the world is going to end. We in school, we were counting like from 10 to zero. And then we thought the world would end <laughs> yeah. things like this. And now it's very like, even if it's like a cliche, you know, thinking about apocalypse and even in films. So I really like how in some sense, it's like this idea of apocalypse that's never happening in the end and like, yeah. or living in the apocalypse is never like the drama is never arriving or it's always present, but not in a, such a dramatic way. And I think maybe it, it relates with what you were saying of the title, which promises gr something grandiose and then it apparently isn't, but then maybe it is maybe just eating something with your friend is more grandiose than And there are, And there are moments of kind of, you know, one of the opening segments when character just collapses onto the floor lies there that feels dramatic how are you directing these scenes are they heavily choreographed or are they heavily improvised uh, depending on the scene of course the falling is not improvised yeah. and it's uh we we see we try to look for a place that's not so uh hard or whatever <laughs> and to plan it and then many times what it, it's more rehearsed is more movement than words Mm. But sometimes there are some scenes that are totally written and what you see, the dialogues that you hear are exactly what I wrote. There's others that are totally improvised. And I, sometimes I didn't even understand what they were saying and I discovered afterwards. Sometimes mm -hmm. I understood in the moment, but maybe we shot for 40 minutes of uh, dialogue and then I choose one part. And most of them are a mix between two. Like sometimes it is like, okay, we are going to walk all this distance in the jungle and you can say whatever you want, but you have to say this whenever you feel you can say it you look for the moment to say this and you say this when you pass by this flower so i like this combination of like um, improvisation and an organic uh, saying whatever you want and then suddenly putting something there that cuts this and brings something foreign to them mm. and see how both things like relate one to another you know after this this strange thing they were like let's say forced to say by me they have to go back to improv improvising so i think there's a like dialogue between the fictionality I propose and the, mm. the, what they propose, which is also fiction. So I don't ask them to talk about reality only. They can invent a story. They can talk about their dreams. They can say whatever they want. And also for that, it's very important to me what type of environment we create during the shooting. Because in my first films, I was I wanted them to improvise, but I realized that was not enough, you know, to improvise, especially when you're not a professional actor. You need to be in an environment where you feel safe enough or you feel confident to improvise. It's not so easy, you know, to have all these cameras in front of you, people you don't know, and then feel free to say whatever. At the mm -hmm. beginning, I thought, like, just say whatever you want, but then you have to create an environment that is relaxed enough and feels confident enough for them to improvise. And also I just tell them that everything they do is fine, even if they don't do anything, even if they don't do anything I ask for, even if they forget, even if they just stand there, you know, everything is fine. There's no um, problem. And I think that helps hopefully 
for them to feel like uh, more confident and try to bring more of them. For me, it's very important that my film is not only about my ideas, but how my ideas are taken by them and how what they propose is taken by me and how this dialogue like finally constructs the film. There's a couple of lines in there basically calling billionaires and millionaires evil bastards. Are those things that you've put in or is that now just so bubbling throughout society so much that people just <laughs> volunteer it? No, I put it okay. in. Yeah. No, I, but I, sometimes I not only put it in, but I was interested in talking about and see what they would think. So some people were um, with me, some others not. For many people like millionaires are still uh, amazing and admirable people <laughs> yeah and uh, but i didn't want to put that part in the film <laughs> but yeah I, there's as i said then i wanted to put it in different contexts you know the first time there is an older lady saying this in sri lanka in this like strawberry house then there's a 15 year old girl saying it in peru so i really like to put these similar phrases in different contexts and see how in the film they relate and they make us think in different ways about mm -hmm. these issues and then they speak in the jungle about killing them or about i don't know finding them over the trees i don't know there's things that come from reality because even when we were in the jungle there were these like over the tree hotels that were super expensive. So it came from there. And then when you are seeing in this context, it's also a bit weird that they are, let's say, looking for millionaires over the trees. So I like always this relation with like reality that brings us these images that are also very weird in some ways. Do you think it's a political film? Yeah, of course. As all of them, right? <laughs> Even if the, the director doesn't think about it, it's always a political film and always how you choose to do it and the type of image you choose and the things you speak about, I think it's always, you're always proposing something and you're always adding something to the political discourse of the world. Even if it's a drop, you know, I'm not mm. feeling so powerful as I could change something, but I'm saying I will share something with the world. I want to add my drop to this river or to that one, you know, or to push this millionaire thing. I, I felt it was something I thought, but I felt it was more and more popular, it's at least in certain parts of society and I thought I want to push that a little bit more or so at least as far as I can so that's why I added these things or other other things they talk about one of the feelings I had while watching the film was it reminded me of playing a computer game that I don't know the rules to you just find yourself kind of like okay wait what what how do I pick up a gun how do I get on a horse or whatever were video games an inspiration yeah, I play a lot. Not now, because the problem I have is that I can't control time very well. So if I start playing, then, oh, then I, don't, I don't work a lot <laughs> at all. So, but in my life, I played a lot. And now it's not even that I think directly about it, but I think it's just in my mind, you know, this, this way of going through the world. But yeah, it is, it is. But many things are also like being in the computer so much, relating to other people through the computer so much, all of these part of life it's a part of me so it comes up sometimes more consciously sometimes more intuitively but i always see it in my films i see and i see it even more when we don't speak about it you know i see it in the way we observe the others in the way we walk in the way we speak in the rhythm of many things i, I think there is a lot of yeah, influence of this you know when you talk about kind of interacting with people online and that stuff is that does that give you a sense of community or a sense of isolation 
both. <laughs> I mean, in some way, it was very useful. Even when I was just in my country, it helped me like to jump and know people from the other part of the city. I mean, Buenos Aires is a huge city. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes when I was a teenager, I felt very, how do you say, very like, I couldn't come out of the bubble in school and all that. And I needed to do it. And the internet helped me to like jump away from this. But then of course, everything has its limits. And then you feel sometimes you are more connected and less connected. It's like also it happened using virtual reality. The first mm -hmm. time I, I saw my footage in virtual reality, I felt I was there, but in a very fake way. I know there's always this dual thing of like connecting and disconnecting in the internet and in life that I try to, to, to yeah, share in the film. You shot across three formats, right? No, this, yeah. that was the human search uh, one was, was three one. cameras. This uh, okay. is the same camera all the, the time, the time, but it changes because also I learned about the camera while using it. So the camera, first time I used it arrived like the day before shooting. <laughs> so it was like, uh, but I really like, we see this learning process in the, in the shooting. And I didn't know exactly how to use the camera. And I learned about it as I used it. And I think it's better than for me at least than researching a lot. And the same thing happens like when I go to a country, you know, I don't research a lot about the country. I go and I learn about it by the people I meet, you know, and sometimes it could, I feel it is the same arbitrary thing than the information we get in the internet, you know? I don't feel like sure. I would get more like trustable, I don't know if it's, that's a good English, information on the internet than just meeting people in the street. Sure. So, and also I, my life is so virtual in some moments, especially when I'm thinking the film and writing it, I'm much more in like, let's say the virtual world. And then when I'm in each country, I'm in the physical world. I try not to be with, previous ideas of each place and just believe in what I see and who I find. So I really like this combination of very virtual and very physical. And then the film is like in the middle of both. So if you don't do kind of, if it's not a big kind of research project before each country, how do you end up choosing where you're filming? Generally, it's like one thing that takes me there. For example, this time Sri Lanka was because I went there before and I was in a bus and I passed through this neighborhood of the spherical houses. They're, they're amazing was, houses. Yeah. First of all, I was just impressed by what I was seeing. You know, you don't expect to find this like futuristic, weird place in a rural area anywhere. They literally look like they're from Tatooine, you know, from what? Star Wars. Yeah, right? exactly. I'm like, what is this? And then I searched a little bit online, like spherical houses, Sri Lanka, and then I found it and I saw they were constructed after the tsunami and this shape uh, is like more it resists better for a future tsunami than a rectangular shape so I started learning all, everything that was like behind this just attractive uh, shape and I really like these places that are like very fantastic when you are not from there but of course for the people that are there it's just their their house and their normal place and then to Peru, to Iquitos, I went because I saw this neighborhood called Belen that is half of the year flooded and half of the year not flooded. And I really was interested in this. There's many places in the world where the people live over the water. And I was interested in going here and going to the Amazon. And then Taiwan, it was a bit more arbitrary. A producer proposed me to go there mm -hmm. and I was more or less near in the world. So I went for a, <laughs> for a small uh, trip there. And I liked, I don't know, I like sometimes when the ideas don't come from me. Sure. And, uh, and you have to react to them. Yeah. That seems to be like, a large bit of your thing. You're interested in yeah. your reaction and other yeah. people's reactions. And also getting out of my own ideas and not getting close in what I can do. And sure. that's why I go to places I don't know, right? Because I try to get my ideas out and to hopefully get them transformed by others and not be so centralized on myself. Is it hard to get films like yours funded these days? 
Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how hard it's for others. I mean, probably many people would say it's hard, even if they do more classical films. But yeah, I mean, this one was the one I could find more funding for, mm -hmm. probably because I have more previous films and yeah. that gives a little more confidence to the funding institutions. Also because we lied more with the script. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's the same ideas. We just put it in a form that was more like uh, available for institutions. Gotcha. It's not that it was a totally different uh, script. It's just that when I write the scripts, I write them for me and for my team. But what I think is useful for the film, I don't write it thinking about what the institutes could read course, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but then some another producer rewrote for them a little bit and it worked. So that's good. <laughs> it's not that we are cheating so much because in the end it's the same film. But yeah, then sometimes having more money is not necessarily better, you know? <laughs> I also, mean, I wanted to have more money because I wanted to pay more to the people that work in the film yeah, and yeah. I didn't feel it's good if you are not paying well and at least you didn't try to pay better. So I felt it was a responsibility I had. But then it brings new complications. So everything is, I don't know, everything is what, learning. What, what are the complications the money brings? <laughs> I don't know, much more producers, for example, which is not always easy. Like we cannot get all the money we need in one place. Yeah. So we got it in many different ones. And everybody's uh, got an opinion. Of course. And I don't know, it, like in every group, as more people you have, it's better in some ways and also more complicated. Um, then I had bigger teams, for example, technical teams, which was good for one part, but then I had to learn how to work in bigger teams before sometimes I traveled and we were three. So I had much more time to be with the actors, for example. And now sometimes I saw myself being more with a technical team, which was good, but then I'm like, I'm, I'm not having so much of a relation with the actors. So there's many things I had to learn of the new structures. That is interesting, but of course, in the moment, you're a bit afraid, of, as, as, as always. But yeah, I don't know. For me, the best thing is when I get proposals and they tell me, we give you this money to make a film and do whatever you want, <laughs> <laughs> which I got sometimes from museums or Vienna, biennials. Uh, of course, it's much less money, but that's the best. So I'm very... I don't know. Everybody in the world likes that. Yeah, uh, right. it's not very original <laughs> for me. <laughs> um, Thanks very much for sitting down for us. Cheers. Thanks to you. Thanks again to Eduardo. This has been Locarno Meets, a podcast from Locarno Film Festival brought to you by UBS. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your pods. This has been a true anti-classic production hosted by me, Alexander Miller, and produced by Jack Boswell. <laughs>